0: Welcome to TNT Art Forum, a podcast of the New Theatre, produced in Richmond, Virginia. Hey Nathaniel.
1: Hey Vida, how are you?
0: I'm great, how are you doing today?
1: Good, I'm good. Am I... Am I spilling too much news to share with people that you blew out your knee since we last recorded?
0: <laughs> well, probably sharing too much, but I will <laughs> say that apparently my knee is fairly magical, according to the, <laughs> to, to the doctor. He said that I have fully and completely adapted to having blown my ACL and not repairing it over 20 years ago. Oh so God. we're just going to call it Black Girl Magic. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love it. I love it. I loved our conversation with Phil and Katrina a couple weeks back. What a wonderful way to start.
0: You know, they're just lovely. And I I think what I really want people to understand is that amazing art comes from all the places in the United States. Right. Amazing theater makers come from more than just Broadway. Let me rephrase that because I love Broadway. Don't get me wrong. Love Broadway. Love the space love the place, love the magic of the moment. But theater making is actually in all of the cities and in Richmond, we have some beautiful theater makers here. I mean, we they just really do. really do.
1: Yeah, I spent the last, I don't know, 10 days or so at RTP for mm-hmm. um, uh, for their new work, uh, The Christmas Kiddush, which was fantastic. I saw a reading of Stonewallin, which one there, so queer festival. I popped over to Firehouse and saw Chandler Hubbard's Man, which is like a serial drama. They're creating four podcastings, thinking okay. along the lines that we are thinking. Uh, saw straight white men at um, Conciliation Lab. So it's been a really, really wonderful run of seeing adventurous contemporary work and Richmond expressing itself in the creation of new works. Um, out, other than you blowing out your knee there's also a couple huge things um huge losses yes. uh, that we experienced since we last got together to record uh and that is the passing of Stephen Sondheim and then I know an artist that's very near and dear to you in bell hooks um mm-hmm. and it you know as is the the reality of our social media age when Sondheim passed, every theater maker rushed to their social media to talk about the influence of Sondheim. And I I, I didn't engage in that right away because it, it does, there are so many people that knew the man or worked directly with him or knew, um, had a more intimate relationship with his works than I did. Um, and so I didn't feel like the person to eulogize, but more to witness that which was being expressed. Um, but a couple of things that, that have been on my mind uh, was what an innovative artist he was. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that, that while there are brilliant composers before Sondheim and there are brilliant lyricists before Sondheim, there is no one that put together the sort of ingenious complexity of composition and lyric writing in the way that Sondheim did and managed to make that commercially accessible. Absolutely. And I I think often, you know, my, my father before he passed, he would lament sometimes moving into the university system and stepping away from concert dance. And he would look at his contemporaries like Paul Taylor, who we both danced for, and and the sort of reputation and admiration. But I would say to my father, but dad, in the university setting, you touched so many lives in such a personal way that the ripple effect, of your work is truly immeasurable and we can quantify the number of musicals Sondheim wrote and the number of productions you could somebody maybe you with your data skill set could analyze how many human beings have seen Sondheim's work over the last decades <laughs> but the ripple effect of his artistry and the way it has impacted both artist and audience is truly immeasurable
0: I could not I could not agree more. And I think what I'm excited about is seeing how people posthumously use him as a muse.
1: So we're joined now for part one of our conversation today. Uh, We're joined by Warren Adams, the co-founder and artistic director of the Black Theatre Coalition and the founder of Smada Media Group, and um, also the choreographer of Motown on Broadway. So not only a, a future media tycoon and changing things in the American theater, but also an incredible artist. So Warren, thank you so much for hanging out with us today.
2: Thank you for having me. How's everyone doing?
0: amazing now because i get to sit in the presence of another theater disruptor
2: what? hey listen we're trying all of us are out here trying because i think that the one thing we all have uh, commonality on is that the old model does not work i think what what pandemic the pandemic has proven is that um people are innovative and 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 they had to get real innovative and yeah. I, I i can't imagine that that all of a sudden just stops once we get back to you know business as usual, so
1: can you take us back a little bit just for for our audience and for the people getting to know the new theater and people getting to know Black Theater Coalition? I know you and your co-founders were talking about these issues um, it, throughout all aspects of the American theater before 2020, but can you talk us like bring us into that conversation a little bit and how 2020? perhaps accelerated and um, solidified the intentions?
2: Sure, sure. So, uh, T. Oliver Reed, uh, you know, it's funny, he and I were actually not connected. We, we saw each other around town, always said hi, nodded and that kind of thing. Um, and then, um, you know, we lost a very close mutual friend, Eric Juan Summers, who was this phenomenal actor, and he was one of the stars in Motown. And, uh, so, you know, he, he succumbed so to uh, uh, cancer. And so we found ourselves in similar rooms all the time. And, and then we were like, you know, where do you live? And he lives down in Borum Hill. I live in Fort Greene. And so we are like, well, we should just grab a coffee. And so we started having what we call coffee dates. And it really became about this idea of creating um, very much like a city center encores, um, which was less about like the performances of people, but about a platform to 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 really magnify Black creatives, Black executives, Black managers, Black... The, the way the whole cookie is made, right? And so that became our discussion, I think probably around October n- 2019. So, you know, a, really a year before the summer of 2020, or close to a year. And, um, and then of course, you know, we'd started talking to some creatives and, and wanted to put up and showcase all of these black creatives um, in both a musical form and in a straight play form. And we were, you know, busy planning. And then of course the summer of 2020 hit. Corona hit, coronavirus hit, and then you know the the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and that made us look at things in a slightly different way, which became less about um, the actual uh, highlighting of performances, but really going, okay, that is the that is the pinnacle if that could happen one day, but really, what is the work that has to be done? Like, what is the actual work that has to go into it? And out of that, the, the Black Theatre Coalition was was born. Um, we both turned to each other without thinking and said we need a third person in Reggie Van Lee. Reggie is just one of the most accomplished, you know, Black executives um, in in the American corporate world, but he's also been a philanthropist and has been a huge fan of particularly dance. Um, I know he's a huge board member of Evidence, uh, Ron Brown's company, but in theater as well. He's been very active. And so we both said Reggie at the same time, we reached out to Reggie. It was a quick dinner and Reggie was like, I'm in. And um, the thing about Reggie is he's a strategist. He's brilliant, but he has enormous experience. And he's the kind of guy, if you need like the White House on the phone, get the White House on the phone. If you
1: need,
2: <laughs> get the mayor, we'll get the mayor. So, um, And so it became a, a perfect partner for us. And I'm a bit of a tech geek. Um, and I was like, well, we can't fix something unless we know how it is broken. Because I think a lot of times people say, oh, yeah, the system's broken. And that's rhetorical, but it doesn't actually identify how it is broken. And so I started going, making my lists first manually, but then started working with a data a data scientist, Yakov um, Bresler, to really identify how we got here and where it is we came from. And, you know, things like, um, you know, I can rattle off a few things, but statistics. So right, the first Broadway show was like in 18, you know, I think it was 1855, it was ironically called Black Crook. Um, So if you look at between 1855 and 2020, you're like around 155 years or something like that. And since that time, there have been 10 Black directors of a play, 11 Black directors of a musical, 17 choreographers of a musical, of which I was number 15 for Motown. And so you look at those numbers and you go out of how much, and you go out of 3,002 musicals and out of 8,354 plays. So when you run an analysis on that, you go, that means that when I'm addressing a group of young choreographers, it is my job to tell them they have a 0.067% chance of ever getting the job on Broadway. Now, once you look at those analytics and data, I feel like, when we started uh, approaching partners, sponsors, and folks, you know, you got you almost have to take all the emotion out of it and go, okay, so we know something's wrong. Everyone's screaming something's wrong, but really the data doesn't lie, right? So I can look at my own union, SDC, and go, so between 2010 and 2020, you had two black directors and you had two black choreographers. What are you going to do about it? Because this is highly problematic. And then also the works that have been created since 1855 are very black centric very black focused the works that came out of there were you know some great works but never led by black creatives or black executives and so what happens is you start to normalize this idea that the front of the room is all white and that those performing on stage are all black it then goes further than that when you look at the financial uh uh, graph of how things work every thursday Creatives will get their check and their royalties from the shows that they do. So, if you know someone like my dear friend David corns I love him, he's a scenic designer, but David did Motown and then Hamilton and then Devin Hansen and then uh, 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 Mrs. Doubtfire, what happens is he just starts to accumulate an asset. What I mean by that is. Without he can go to a bank and he can borrow money against that because it's showing that is all coming in the future, not just Broadway, but tours in London and so forth. So you're creating a, a disparity between those that, what the American theater is saying to the black creatives that you can't have an asset. Really, that's what it comes down to. And so, so now you're creating disparity. Back in the day, they had laws against that in this country where in the 1960s, you, you know, banks legally just, didn't, just did not give loans to black people. And it had to go to Congress and Congress had to pass laws that said, that is actually illegal. It has to be based on somebody's financial, uh, you know, what they're able to repay. And so we saw a shift in that. So, you know, my challenge to the American theater was to actually, you know, uh, look at artists, look at creatives, look at executives based on their ability, rather rather than the color of their skin or their gender. You know, I always say, Manhattan is arguably the most diverse place on the planet, um, and but if you walk, you know, if you if you walk between 14th Street and 59th Street, which is where we do most of our work, it is completely, it is so diverse. Yet the buildings we walk into are not demonstrative of the people that are walking on the streets, because once you get into the buildings, that is not the case. So, so what we did with BTC was really just to like fight this fight with data and analytics. I mean, just say to people. The first question we ask is, is this ethical or is it unethical? And the answer is, every time it's unethical. And then the follow-up question is, so what are you gonna do about it? You know, how are you gonna work with this?
0: Can I just point out that the reason why I became a data scientist is because it is in the storytelling from the data that we are going to resolve these issues. So it is absolutely, shouldn't be surprising to anyone on the planet why I would co-found a theater and why I mean for the theater that we have founded to be disruptive, because I already know what the numbers are and I already know that without these types of disruptive actions, disruptive actions, we're not gonna make the change. And the change is that fundamental. I love the way you, you phrase that as a creative asset through which to gain future um, everything, right? To gain future profit, to gain future notoriety. But more important, I'm gonna say, is that they have a, they have a creative asset that is used to tell our modern day story. Because right. I believe that it's the artist that is the best representation of historical record right. than the history book writers.
2: Absolutely, right? absolutely.
0: And so whoever's in charge of curating the modern experience at any given point in time, not just acts as a financial gatekeeper, but also acts as um, an agent to tell what stories get told about a modern era. And if we do not disrupt it right now, how many of these fantastic stories are gonna get lost coming out of just 2020 to 2025? We have had so much explosion across this country in so many different social eras that these artists are bursting forth with with all kinds of expression that the gatekeepers can curate away from if we're not successful, Warren, in disrupting how that curation gets done.
2: Look, you you just nailed it, right? This, yes, the financial component, I bring it up because it is an asset which allows you to build more. But more importantly, when it comes to the actual, you know, art of storytelling, is it's why you have situations right now where you know our colleagues over at Disney have to like you know put up a note that says okay this was you know in nineteen whatever whatever, is because it, it you know when Shonda Rhimes premiered her uh, Bridgerton show, everyone was say oh you know it's lovely but oh but it's it's so not realistic right it's you know because you know there weren't black people in and I went actually Shonda didn't go far enough like if anything. It, there were Black people everywhere. People, people don't realize that, you know, the Three Musketeers was written by Alexander Dumas. Dumas was from Haiti. Uh, Dumas' grandfather was the first general of the French army. Like these are all factual things, right? He was he literally was the general of the French army. And so I think he was called the, the, uh, the Black, uh, gosh, it'll come back to me, but uh, aside from Dumas, go further north up to Russia, right? the the first poet laureate of of Russia was uh, Alexander Pushkin. Pushkin writes in his poetry of the the darkness that flows through my veins, right? When I visited Moscow about four years ago, all of these artists kept telling me, they were like, do you know Pushkin? I was like, of course. Pushkin's grandfather's from Eritrea. Eritrea is next to Ethiopia. And so there's this concept of, of that, you know, Blackness started with slavery and ended with Obama, right? Whereas in reality, if, if you actually understand how Europe was built, if you look at the Moors and look at how they built irrigation systems in Spain, and like, it's, is, I'm not surprised by Bridgerton. Black people were ubiquitous in positions of power in Europe at the time. So I think this idea that our stories get told in one way, which starts with, like I said, slavery, oh God, roots, oh, you know, Amistad, and then ends up with, look, civil rights, MLK, and then shoots to, Barack Obama, look, we've survived. It's like, well, that's not actually true.
0: You want to know what's even more poignant? And I'm sorry, I just got to pull this out. And then I promise that we will get back on you know, our script. But I think what bothers me the most about that Warren, is that people do not understand that racism itself was an economic innovation. Completely. So in order for them to have a class to subjugate, they had to come up with a detail upon to indicate, illustrate, and that was easily accessible for subjugation. Racism did not exist prior to slavery. That's why the way that we interpret black history is from slavery to Obama, because prior to that, we were just brown folk.
2: It's, it's Look, it's, it, the, the way that I like to address it is there are three things that all of us on this call used this morning that none of us, or most of us are not aware, was created by black people. Dr. Shirley Jackson over at MIT created call waiting. she also created you know, uh, caller id right but that was taken by i guess i think was at&t and but you never hear the name dr shirley jackson you know professor dr mit um the elevator was a manual elevator but the automated elevator was also created by a black man similarly edison yes created i guess the light bulb but we all knew that that only lasted for a few hours the gentleman that actually came up with a filament that then allows the bulb to last for as long as it does was created by a black man so Again, when you think of those three things, elevator, caller ID, and uh, um, um, what was the third one? Um, the filament. The, the filament, yeah. That, that if, if young Black people don't, or really not just young Black people, but, but people in general don't understand how that came to be, you start to remove the importance of these people. And therefore, they are only looked upon as slaves or the son of right. slaves. So, so, so yes, the power, going back to what you're saying, Vida, is that we have to make sure that it is not just economic, but also placed in positions of power so that those stories can be told in a proper way. Yes, well, so I, that I, we
0: can get back to being human again.
2: Yeah,
1: exactly. And the theater has the power to tell all those stories. Uh-huh. It so does. So can you talk a little bit, Warren, um, one of the things that I've been so excited about, the Black Theater Coalition, um, is that in such a short period of time, I feel like, you've, as you alluded to earlier in the call, you didn't just point to the problem and, 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 and complain about the issue. You really took pretty incredible action, raised a lot of money, built a big network of partners to, 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 to work on these challenges. So can you talk a little bit about how you're actually doing that because as Vida said earlier the change needs to be tactical and you are you know I think coming out of 2020 Black Theater Coalition has proved that you are tactical and you are actually making significant progress
2: the strategy was to really look at like I said first excuse me identifying what the problem was the second thing was watching people's reactions to the summer of 2020 and if you recall we went through like a two, three week period of people putting out statements on their social media that we believe and we will, and we will no longer and all of this. Right. So uh, I just kept track of all of those and basically then would engage those people and say, Hey, I saw what you said and we have come up with a solution. Like I don't, I don't, I'm not asking you to do the work for me. Well, I'll, we'll do the work, but I want to engage you based on what you said and mm-hmm. rolled out our plan our plan was to you know it was actually very um it was very uh, organic and uh, nathaniel you and i've been in you know directed theater and choreographed theater and we've been in in a space and typically i I, did, I closed my eyes and i walked into the theater and envisioned what tech was like right so you always think of like there's the table the director choreographer lighting set costume and you just built an. we built an entire ecosystem and i looked at you know I always—that's one of my favorite days uh, when you walk into the theater for the first time because now you're moving from the studio to to you know to the real thing. <laughs> and when you do that, you realize like the number of Black people make up less than one percent. So if you look at, like I said, directors, zero, less than one percent, choreographers. It gets even worse when it gets to like designers, right? I, I discovered there were only two Black lighting designers in the history of the Great White Way. So, so yes, exactly. So when you look at that, you go, okay, my brother, for example, is you know at school right now for design. He's transitioning from performance to design. Oh, good. It is the American theater's job to then tell him that he has a 0. 0.000 whatever the hell percent chance of ever getting hired, because that's based on data again. So what we did was we created an analysis for each one of those, and whoever we were speaking to, be it a general manager, be it a, uh, um, you know, people in, in design. We said, the, these are the facts here. What are your thoughts? Unethical, okay, so here's the plan. What we wanna do is strategically put, place people into positions where, we, we, we got rid of that word intern, right? So interns are like, again, that is a, another white supremacist structure where you can get to go and spend 30 hours at somebody's office and you make, you know, a metro card and a cup of coffee. The people that can do that are people that have a support system at home, a foundation. Right? They don't have to pay rent, they don't have to do any of those things. Um, black people typically are not found, they don't find themselves in those positions. So what we did was we went and mapped out what a fellowship is, which is based on an amount. We looked at the state's guidelines for like what an amount is that they can live off. And we basically went to our partners and said, can you do 57,500? And if you can, great, if you can't, what can you do? And we will go match that with another donor. And so we strategically went one by one through each line item, and said, how can we get, and we really focused on the management positions first, because we know that if you are the lead producer and if you are the general manager, there's a trickle down effect as to who gets hired. If you look at, you know, The Wiz, uh, 19, it was 1967, No, sorry, 1974, um, the producer was black, okay? So uh, uh, Ken Harper is one of two black lead producers of a musical ever. Mm-hmm. The other is Barry Gordy Jr., who I did Motown with. So when he was black guess who the director was guess who the costume designer was guess who the and so there was a trickle down effect right and of course they went on to win the tony and several tony awards so that was a proof of concept what's problematic is it didn't carry on it was just like the Wiz was literally a a unicorn and so we basically looked at the model from that going how do we build out general managers producers um you know, when we started, there were no black general managers on Broadway, there are seven now working in seven different offices, which means we have a 700% increase in general managers, same with producers. Um, and so so we went efficiently line by line and basically mapped out what these statistics were, and then found donors made up of corporate sponsors made up of partners made up of, of just private donors. The other day, we just received our first foundation grant from the Doris Duke uh, Charitable Foundation. So um, we, we, we strategically built out what these people are going to be doing and that they were getting paid, not that they were you know going to be interning.
1: Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Um, and it really is one of the, uh, I don't know, one of the most exciting innovations um, that I've seen in a long time that people aren't, you know, you're going so far beyond just pointing at the problem and so far beyond even the data analysis but the number of people in how long have you all been <laughs> i mean two years are we even at two No,
2: we so we are at uh, actually 18 months now and uh and we are about to announce our 32 fellows that you know some of them are working right now they're in yeah. offices they're working on shows and some of our designers are working with the likes of Natasha Katz. They're working, and look. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, we wanted to make sure is that we don't just thrust people into a place that they weren't ready for. Because I think what everyone is, you know, eager to say is like, "See, we we did it," and 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 look, it didn't work out. We we mm-hmm. actually want to put people in positions where it's okay if they if they fail, like where it's okay if they make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. And and that they can continue. Um, I I typically believe that black people. You know fail down and white people fail up it's just a fact (laughs) and then you know before we
1: leave this topic i i'm thinking back to your post in june of 2020 Mm -hmm. um your social media post that was picked up by playbill and i imagine others talking about um the perpetual racism in the american theater and you used a phrase the illusion of inclusion (laughs) and I've I've always thought you coined that phrase, maybe somebody else said that at some point, but I've always attributed it to you. Um, and I would love for you to just kind of share what you mean. I, mm-hmm. I, took, I took the impression, I took it as, when we look up on a stage today, mm-hmm. whether it's a Broadway or a national touring company or a, a Lort Regional Theater, mm-hmm. what we see is a pretty diverse expression of the American experience, at least from, a race and ethnicity standpoint, mm-hmm. we have further to go in so many other ways, um, but it's everything—everything everything on every other page of the playbill—that lacks that. Is that kind of what you were driving at, or is there something different? Or not dated? just not just
2: kind of—you nailed it. No, you absolutely nailed it. Um, look, I think it would be wrong to say that there have not been improvements made in the American theater when it comes to casting. I think Hollywood, you know, can also look at that. If you look at ten years ago. The amount of 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 BIPOC people that were working um, or rather not working versus now, it's it has grown. The problem is with that is I call it an illusion, is because if the decision makers are constantly the well, the decision makers are constantly the ones that decide what comes next, right? Is is I want to get out of this this idea that you know you have a success and then you go back to zero to start again. You have a success and then you go back to zero to start again. In every other industry, you are watching people constantly climb. The illusion of inclusion is based on this narrative where the American theater would say, "Oh, but look at Hamilton. Oh, but look at this show." And you were like, "Yeah, there's diversity on stage, but..." How it functions, how it runs, who decides what gets produced, when it gets produced, how much money is spent, how much marketing. You can go down the entire list. I guarantee you, you will find a stat that says we make up less than 1%. Imagine saying to a human being that your stat is zero point something, right? So I ran a company, a production company, who got very close to getting a Broadway house, but every time we got close, we didn't. And what that means is if you look at Barry Gordy Jr. and Ken Harper from The Wiz, they succeeded in getting a Broadway musical produced by Black people on Broadway. Every time Brandon and I sat down with a the theater owner, we had a zero point zero four percent chance of getting a house. Now imagine, as an intellectual, as a as a intelligent human being, walking into a room, knowing you have less than a one percent chance of success. Like it's very dehumanizing and, and, and when the ones who are having some success are not able to do that, imagine what it does to the ones that are looking to be the next generation.
0: Warren, can I ask you a controversial question with regard to this? It is something that I think is, I'm gonna say I think it's in the collective psyche of, of black America today. And I mean by black America, let's call it the black diaspora because I know mm-hmm. that we are, we're covering a, a larger spread than just in America. But America's one of the economic centers, right, for, for the Black diaspora. One of the, a couple of the things I think that are coming out, and I just want to get your impression on it. I'm going to move us out of the theater for a second. Deion Sanders' coup for Jackson State and the declaration that, oh, no, Black athletes can be grown and groomed and successful in their career in an HBCU. Let's go back to Gloria Naylor's work, Bailey's Cafe, where her opening scene Um, She has the narrator in that moment talk about how Jackie Robinson was amazing, but not the best Black baseball player of the day. And had the Negro Baseball League just sat tight for a second would have illustrated the epitome of what baseball could have become. There is a narrative going on right now that says maybe we don't need to be on Broadway. Maybe we need to create a Broadway. How do you how do you think about that? And, and again, I know that's a controversial question. If you want to pull it off, we don't have to. But
2: no, 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 no. I'm happy i I about- think it's
0: central to the discourse today.
2: I think. I think it's both. Okay. Right. I think that you can work within a system that has been problematic to elevate, you know, your people, while simultaneously building something else as well. Um, our partners, one of the things that we got into early on is to, before we partner with somebody, is to really have open discussion. Yes. Really like, and, and, and we have amazing partners. I mean, um, and we actually don't call them partners. We call them. Uh, um, Accomplice. That is the word. We call them accomplices. So it's, yeah. you look at our website, you see that, you know, all of our partners are white, Black, Asian, Latin, you know, native partners, uh, we call them accomplices. Meaning, if you think of the definition of an ally, an ally in a war is somebody that will join you, but an ally has the ability to also opt out, right? they are no longer gonna be an ally, but an accomplice is in it to win it. Like, we believe in what you're doing, we are gonna cross that bridge with you, and no matter what happens, we are gonna stay with you. And that's an accomplice.
0: But you know, it's, it's, I love that word. Okay, so I'm, I'm telling you, um, we're gonna go with that. Like, we're gonna make that the thing. Are you an, not an ally, are you an accomplice? Exactly. Because there is, a, there, is a, there is an ethos of, are you gonna get bloody with me? You Correct. can't do this just when we, there's glory. You have to be willing to get bloody with me. Correct. And I think people don't understand that these systems changing that we're asking for in many of these industries, not least of which is our own, because it is an artistic expression, because it is a historical record, people are going to have to get bloody with us. Like, well, after, after they give the donation, they got to know, we need them beside us, because it's going to get hard.
2: It's going to get hard, and then it's going to get, before it gets great. You know, I, right. I, I, come, from, I come from a country where I actually lived through a revolution. I grew up okay. in apartheid South Africa, where it was legal to say that I was less than. I grew up in a system where I used separate bathrooms, separate beaches, separate hotels, separate, that was my normal. And then, you know, one day this dude by the name of Mandela was released. And then that dude became the president. And I was actually fortunate, the first Mandela scholar. So he was a mentor of mine. Okay. But it's this idea that when people say it's the law, well, the law was created by the people in power to systemically give them an advantage. So when you see laws changing, once upon a time, women couldn't vote. Once upon a time, Black people couldn't vote. Once Those were all laws. The laws are evolutionary things. They are not things set in stone. And so I think when people go, oh, but that's the law, I'm like, well, then let's change the law.
0: <laughs> so, Warren, can I just say, perhaps maybe somebody should be writing your musical. And I did say musical, I didn't say play.
2: like a a musical about your life
0: like i feel like we need this in the historical record too.
2: (laughs) no there's way more interesting stories to tell
0: (laughs) i doubt it
1: (laughs) well speaking of interesting this this hour has been fascinating warren and we are so lucky and so grateful that we can call you a new theater advisor and thank you the ability to pick up the phone or hop on a zoom like we did today to talk to you about these issues and um it's just, it's a wonderful blessing to our company but also I think to our audience and to Richmond Theatre audiences, uh, especially those who are excited about and wanting to make some changes in these areas so just just so grateful you give us the time today.
2: you You're welcome and you know you guys are doing great work and it's, it's I think, once you fully roll out what you're doing I think can become a blueprint for others because again i think you are looking at things from a perspective of the new normal and i something i want to make very clear is like when we talk about these things this is not about removing people who have worked very hard to be there this is about you know folks like to say oh you know just pull up your bootstraps and, and and work hard well there are a number of folks that have done that and and what we're saying is let's get people into the room let's get people acknowledged for their work and then let's start talking about let's pick the best person for a job because until that is done you're really looking at an an, and you know an, an unequal system so kudos to to the new theater for and a great name because you were really looking at it as a new theater like how do you you know make sure that all the plots get watered not just a subset of plots
0: and i think that that so Michael Bobbitt is joining us, and I guess whenever he pops in here, mm-hmm. um, because I, I think I didn't grow up in a the theater. Theater is not my first industry. Let's be very clear. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a tech innovator. I'm a corporate maven, all of those things. That's how I have spent 25 years of my life. Okay, but And, and so to your point again about finding the problem statement, I think However, what is super important to me right now and what is bubbling up to the top as an innovation opportunity is how do our art forms continue to evolve to reflect who we are in the moment that we're creating it. And I think that as an industry, we're falling short on the innovation, but we're falling short on the innovation because the system wasn't designed to be inclusive at minimum, democratic at maximum it wasn't it wasn't meant for all of us to participate in right. it so in order to innovate it we must first deal with the system correct right. Right. right and i think that that order of operations sometimes gets lost in the broader conversation because we do talk about theater and we talk about theater equal venue we think about theater equal place like broadway and we think about theater equal people like our canon and when we do that we miss the opportunities that are being presented at presented to us by the younger artists who is thinking performative arts equals anywhere that you're going to see me and the maximum number of people who are going to relate to me and Mm -hmm. add to my story so that it becomes dramatically interactive which if those are all of the lines for innovation then we have to change the system
2: which, which in order it, to
0: accommodate it.
2: Which is ironic, because everything you just said is innovative. And yet, where theater actually stems from is from this thing called vaudeville, vaudeville, which is vaudeville, which is voice of yes. the people.
0: right? With, with, yes.
2: it, it didn't start with, it wasn't called gatekeepers, right? Like, so it, it's really become, it's now become a real estate play, where real estate also becomes the presenter, becomes the producer, becomes the power, becomes yes. the talent ticket mask becomes the ticket box office. Like all of those things are layers put in place so that the people, you know, you go back to Shakespeare and all of those cats, like they were just friends who got together and wrote, right? Let's put it up. Like they just, and they had they had their uh, uh, um, opinions on, on, you know, systems like, uh, um, you know, uh, royal families and political systems and gender and race. And like, you know, my man didn't write Othello just because he wrote it because he saw things around him. That's right. And so, and so those characters like Iago and Othello come out of things that were real world problems. And what you have today is people going, ooh, we should, you know, that's innovative. No, it's not. It's been around. You just got rid of it. And because right. it doesn't fit your system.
0: But, you know, we're going through that reclamation in just about every industry across the board. We could talk about agriculture. And mm-hmm. having to go back and reimagine and revisit and retool around some of our antiquated ways that we're actually re-innovating because it was unique and it gave us a place. And I think that that's what we're finding about the theater again too, is it got away from enabling us to be Indigenous to place. Correct. And because the American society is struggling with what does Indigenous to place mean when everyone here came from somewhere else and the people that were always here were told they didn't have a voice here
2: correct if you if yeah if you remove if you remove a subset of people or you remove a thing because it is not making your system shine eventually it will catch up to you I, i i implore everyone to always go look at it's a beautiful documentary um you know, when the wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park, I would I, go watch it on YouTube. There's a very short version of it which summarizes it. But all I'll say is because they brought, they put the wolves back in, all the water came back. All the rivers came back. All the streams came back. And you, when you think about it, you're like, that's mind blowing. Why would wolves bring back water? Go watch it. Because it's a trickle down effect. It shows you that once you remove a thing that was meant to be there, but because it, you know, it didn't benefit yeah. you personally, you actually affect the entire ecosystem. And when that's you right. Affect the ecosystem, you then damage the entire ecosystem.
1: Yeah. So, where can our listeners learn more about us? Keep up with the conversation.
0: Oh, you know how I love to be in conversation, Nathaniel. And so they can get in conversation with us on Instagram and Twitter at the new theater at the new underscore theater. They can also get us on Facebook, which is a constant conversation because we're old like that at the new theater RVA, or they can get on our mailing list at our website at www.thenewtheaterrva.org. But more than anything, I want them to meet us right back here in two weeks at our next TNT Art Forum. This episode of TNT Art Forum was recorded at Common House RVA. The Art Forum is produced by Hannah Sakura and Kaylin Williams and edited by Kaylin Williams. Our theme music is by Julian Evans. Thank you.
1: See you later.